0: This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Monday, October 11th. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, county looks to create affordable housing zone district, democracy dies in news deserts, how to cook healthy and cheap, and a mountain weather forecast. All local governments in the region are looking for ways to increase affordable housing for residents. On Monday, the San Miguel Board of County Commissioners sat down with its Planning and Zoning Commission to discuss making a whole new zone district to encourage higher density affordable housing.
1: Housing may be in attached, detached, single family homes, duplexes, or multifamily. Development may also include rooming houses and spaces to connect tiny homes.
0: That's Kay Simonson, planning director for San Miguel County, speaking before the joint work session. And while the aim of the potentially new zone district is aimed at making it easier for developers to build affordable and workforce housing, that doesn't mean there isn't a process.
1: You know, people would still have to go through a two-step process to rezone to this zone district. Um, although any applications can be considered concurrently. Um, If they subdivide the property into multiple lots, uh, that's a five-step process.
0: To start, Simonson suggests a number of levels for the review process. Some types of buildings are use by right, like residential accessory buildings and daycare homes. Others, she suggests, be on a scale. Up to 10 units is available for administrative review, Up to 25 are a one-step planning commission review. 26 or more is a two-step review. But County Commissioner Hillary Cooper thinks up to 15 units per acre should be used by right, making it as easy as possible for developers to build. I think it
1: needs to be much higher. Um based on, you know, the numbers that we, the deficit that we know that we have.
0: With that said, when it comes to more commercial use that would be allowed in the potential zone, like churches, libraries, daycares, parks and playgrounds, Cooper thinks there should be more of a process.
1: We need a new lawsuit
0: um,
1: because of our, you know, the demand for, for housing and the amount of housing we need. And we can't just keep relying on the town of Telluride to build all of our housing. So we need to make room for a new Lawson somewhere out there. Um, And uh, so we should allow for some kind of additional uses. Um, However, I think I would feel more comfortable having those go through more of a process.
0: When it comes to the housing piece, Lee Taylor, chairman of the Planning Commission, believes the difference between a PUD application and a two-step provides flexibility.
2: You're talking about, you know, three to four months for a two-step, including development time for the application, depending on the complexity, and, uh, you know, 60 days to get it through the process. Um, so I don't think it makes us any less nimble to allow for some review, and I'm I'm wary of... Um, Making too many, too much density available um, by administrative review, not because K doesn't do a good job, but because um, we're going to be trying to squeeze these things in where we can to uh, to add as much housing as we can.
0: And Planning Commission member Jocelyn Lifton-Zoline adds, having a review process could actually be beneficial for a development. I think that having
1: one and or two-step review has the benefit of kind
3: of getting these projects into the public consciousness in a way that just doing administrative review might not, and that that might help create some energy around these possibilities for landowners.
0: Other conversations circle around roads, the size of parcels eligible, and largely water. Commissioner Cooper doesn't want developers to go in with a plan only to find there isn't water access for the property. Allowing for
1: developers to, you know, even think that they can develop out in the unincorporated county and then um, go through the process and discover that they don't have water is, um, is uh, you know, making the problem even worse. So I think we need to look at some kind of um, geographic area that can connect to existing water, water systems.
0: Simonson says she would propose allowing the zone district in the Telluride regional area or the F zone, in essence, the east end of the county. At the end of the meeting, there isn't full consensus on what process should be in place for any certain number of units. However, both commissions are on board with the creation of the district. Next step, Another joint meeting on November 17th to further discuss and potentially adopt the Land Use Code Amendment creating the Zone District. If you ask Judy Muller, democracy doesn't only die in darkness, as The Washington Post says, it also dies in news deserts. A place where there is no reliable source of information about what's happening
4: in your community. People go to social media. That's not reliable. It's full of gossip and misinformation. And then democracy suffers because if you don't have an editor or a reporter who's sitting in on those school board meetings, the town council meetings, on your behalf and reporting to you what's happening to your tax
0: dollars, then you are in the dark when it comes to electing somebody. Mueller is a professor of broadcast journalism at the University of Southern California, She's a veteran journalist who's worked for ABC and NBC News. She's been featured on NPR, Al Jazeera, PBS. She's an author writing about news and journalism, and she calls Norwood home. Next week, Mueller will be hosting a movie screening and fundraiser for CoLab, a statewide nonprofit looking to support local media. The film is an award-winning documentary, Storm Lake, a newspaper, a family, a community. It's about This really
4: feisty editor of a small town, well, 11,000 people, but a relatively small town in Iowa, Storm Lake. It's a biweekly paper, and the travails that he goes through to keep it going, it really is a great look at what a community newspaper means to people and what would happen if it wasn't
0: there. She says now is the time to be investing in local news. We are trying to support local newspapers, uh, primarily weeklies in
4: Colorado. And a lot of them are going out of business across the country. You know, they're losing advertisers. Businesses are going under. And when they go under, the advertisers go under. And it's just this horrible chain reaction. And um, I think that we all need to be invested in good information these days.
0: And while Mueller's resume is long and impressive, she says supporting that local newspaper hits close to home. She got her start at a weekly paper in New Jersey, the Freehold Transcript. I didn't get paid much, but I have never
4: felt such a sense of purpose. Um, we had a mayor who was really corrupt, but New Jersey's known for that. Uh, we were able to expose that and and get him turned out of office because he was really ripping off taxpayer dollars. So I really got the bug then, um, that you can make a difference to people's lives. And it didn't matter, even no matter even when I was at ABC News and a national correspondent, the stories I loved doing the most were those stories that really impacted people at a very real everyday level.
0: And Mueller believes that sense of local impact, it's not just on the side of the reporter. It also comes from the reader. If you ask people, what newspaper do you read? They might
4: say, well, I read the Wall Street Journal and my paper. Okay, my paper, that sense of ownership is their community paper. People feel very strongly attached to their local paper and they believe it at a time when, you know, credibility of news media is at an all time low. Uh, for various reasons, the community newspaper, the weekly, is still trusted. She says that trust comes from accountability. The editor and the reporters have to live next door to the people they report on. They are accountable in a way that, you know, larger news organizations may not feel. I mean, they could be accountable, but they, the pressure of running into the person you've just written about in the grocery store line is <laughs> very different. So people trust it. And that's important Um, without knowing what's happening in your community, especially with COVID, school information, uh, what's happening at the town council. These are vital things for people to know. Also, the police blotter, high school sports, people love that. Um, They like to brag about their community. Married and buried, that's the old cliche, we cover that. Um, This is about your town.
0: A screening of the film Storm Lake and fundraiser for the nonprofit CoLab will take place at the Sheridan Opera House on Monday, October 18th at 7 p.m. Tickets will be available at the door. For Ruth Homan, Cooking in college wasn't the most nutritious. I
2: remember going to the store and seeing like Top Ramen, 10 for a dollar. And it was like, okay, that's 10 meals. I'm golden, right? And then it was like by day three, it was like,
0: what can I add to this? Because this is junk. But now, years later, with more culinary experience under her belt, Homan is out to dispel the idea that healthier food has to be more expensive. Homan is a community health worker with Tri-County Health Network, and soon she'll be teaching a number of classes about cooking on a budget. The classes are in connection with World Food Day, coming up on October 16th. Statewide nonprofit Hunger Free Colorado notes one third of Coloradans lack reliable access to nutritious food and over 15 percent of children don't receive adequate nutrition due to financial constraints. Both issues are more severe in rural areas. The aim of her classes, Homan says, is to address a need in the community. Maybe we don't have access to the best food or the freshest food at all times, and, but yet we still need
2: to be able to eat healthy to keep ourselves healthy and fit. One big tip she'll
0: explore is preventing waste.
2: A lot of time just going to the grocery store, having a list so that you're not just buying blindly or certainly don't go with your hungry and just start throwing stuff into your cart. But go to the store with a plan.
0: Another part of waste reduction the class will look at is learning to stretch out ingredients.
2: And if you get to the end of the week and you're like, wow, I still have a chicken breast left, but I might not be able to use it, so I'm gonna throw it in the freezer and I'll have it for next week when I want to make a soup or something.
0: So little strategies like that. Homan will host two classes in Telluride at the end of the month and a series of six classes in Norwood. For the Telluride classes, the first is called Making Recipes Work for You, looking at taking the intimidation out of cooking.
2: You don't have to follow a recipe like line by line. So it's teaching you how to sub in stuff that you like or your family likes. And then also we'll go into frameworks. So a basic casserole, a basic stir fry, a basic soup, like... The possibilities are endless once you have that basic framework.
0: The second class is called Money Saver Alert and focuses on food waste.
2: It's using hard ingredients that you get to the end of the week and it's like, what do I do with this extra can of black beans? I don't know. So we're going to talk about different ways to use ingredients that you might not be able to use up all the time.
0: Both classes will involve cooking food to eat there, and everyone will go home with groceries to cook a meal for a family of four. And when it comes to Homan's personal culinary habits, simple, cheap cooking doesn't mean ramen anymore.
2: My go-to meal is honestly just grilled chicken breast and and veggies, whether they're steamed or roasted. I just go with that. That's a go-to. It's easy.
0: Classes in Telluride will take place on Tuesday, October 26th and Wednesday, October 27th from 6 to 7 p.m. at the Telluride High School Culinary Room. The Norwood classes will take place on November 1st, 8th, 15th, and December 6th, 13th, and 20th from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Lone Cone Library. The Cooking Matters classes are free. Registration is available at tchnetwork.org. The temperatures may be dropping, but it's the hottest season of the year, election season. With a number of candidates running for Telluride Town Council and ballot issues heating up local politics, The San Miguel Progressive Women's Caucus is teaming up with the Wilkinson Public Library to bring voters the facts. The event will discuss each ballot measure up for a vote this year, including two housing measures, amendments to Telluride's Home Rule Charter and Municipal Code, and the potential reallocation of lodging taxes. There will also be opportunity to hear from the candidates running for town council. The Fireside Election Forum will take place on the library's back patio on Wednesday, October 13th, 5 15 pm there will be heaters fire pits and hot drinks to keep voters warm the ute indian museum in montrose opened a new art exhibit in september featuring the work of greg Deal, titled merciless indian savages it's a provocative show an indigenous exploration of what american democracy means for indian country the show will be up through january Gavin Dahl from KVNF in Montrose spoke with Deal about his work.
5: Greg Deal is a contemporary artist and activist whose work deals with indigenous identity through a pop culture lens. Thanks for joining me, Greg. And Thanks for having me. Start by telling listeners about yourself. Where are you from? Where are you based? And what are the mediums you like to work in?
3: I grew up in Utah, meeting my wife there and moving to Washington, D.C., where we lived for about 17 years before we moved to Colorado. I live in El Paso County uh, on the outskirts of Colorado Springs. And I work primarily in paint and murals and performance art and uh, conceptual work, filmmaking, spoken word. I mean, you name it. I'm kind of using everything.
5: You're a tribal member of which nation?
3: I'm a member of the Pyramid Lake Paiute Tribe, uh, which is in Nevada, uh, just outside of Reno.
5: There's so many striking images in your current show at the Indian Museum in Montrose, including the piece that reads, Existence as Protest, another that reads, Solidarity through Tradition, even a COVID public service announcement of sorts that says protect our elders. Talk about the visual themes in this show and your graphic style.
3: I'm a fan of portraits. So uh, faces tend to make an appearance in my work. It's a mix, honestly. I mean, I, I went to school for painting, but I also took the same amount of graphic design courses as graphic design majors and really wanted to have some things that I could use as tools within my work. And so creating work that, you know, starts in a drawing and then ends up graphically can exist as a mural, can exist as a print, can exist as a sticker or as a t-shirt is where I go with a lot of those things. So the works that you mentioned are meant to be sort of graphically interesting to look at, kind of following an old Sort of propaganda style um, that you might see in China, Cuba, uh, even Russia and Mexico. There's these uh, print processes at that time where you could only do like a three or four color print process. And so it limits your color palette and Shepard Ferry kind of made something like that pretty popular, but it's been around, you know, for a hundred years. It's just meant to sort of within the works that I create that have a sort of collective indigenous voice, uh, those works tend to be the, uh, the most effective.
5: You include a piece in your show at the museum that juxtaposes cartoon depictions of native characters and caricatures into a silhouette of the chief Wahoo image used by the baseball team in Cleveland. That's also nearing an official name change. As you know, the Montrose School District still utilizes native mascot iconography at the high school and one of the middle schools, but under a new state law in Colorado, those schools are likely going to change mascots by next year. I've heard plenty of locals in Montrose say the school mascots are not intended to offend. They're a source of pride for alumni, other arguments like that. Talk about why you've been outspoken on this issue for many years in your work and in your public statements.
3: Like you said, I've been at this for a few years in Washington, D.C. I was uh, one of many voices that were at the head of the uh, mascot debate with the Washington football team, and have had an opportunity to participate at a lower level, but uh, certainly participate in Colorado under this new law. There's a uh, school in our area uh, called Cheyenne Mountain, and their mascot were Indians, and it kind of happens a couple of ways. One is uh, people who just they don't really want to give up the perception of their tradition, and it doesn't make sense to give it up. And oftentimes, having indigenous people inform this discussion has really been difficult because nobody wants to hear it, even if it's a valid discussion. We're part of a generation of people where representation of Indigenous people was really one-sided and sort of vapid in its representation. It's stereotypical, it's incorrect, it's based on the perception of non-Native people over the course of hundreds of years of romantic nationalism. Those elements have informed what our identity is, But in the age of social media, our identity has changed dramatically because we've been able to inform what that identity is. But like anything, old dogs, new tricks, you know, it's really difficult for people to let go of things uh, and realize that maybe what they hold as being non-offensive is in fact, and realizing that there are other ways of thinking of things. There are other ways of honoring, there are other ways of having this discussion and having it in a way that can be positive for a community that's open to hear the story. Stories of actual indigenous people.
5: Along the, those lines, stories of actual indigenous people, you have an acrylic work on canvas at the museum called Bloody Knees, Bloody Elbows about a boy at an Indian boarding school. Can you talk about that?
3: Yeah, that painting is based on a story that came out of the boarding school that my relatives went to in uh, Shirts, Nevada. It is meant to illustrate the stories that we don't hear about. Oftentimes, particularly in the art world, we are resorted to storylines that make sense to a buyer's market and the buyer's market is predominantly white. And so that Western buyer's market wants to, they want to see cowboys and Indians. They want to see the headdresses. They want to see buckskin. Boarding schools are these stories that nobody really wants to talk about because it's ugly and it's painful. But I think in terms of some sort of reconciliation and recognition, and in trying to avoid erasure of Indigenous people, not just in the 1800s, but between that time and this time where boarding schools really thrived and existed, that piece is specifically about those events, those boarding schools. Right now, obviously, that's really relevant between the boarding school issues that are gaining ground in Canada and are beginning to gain ground here in the United States, they just found an unmarked grave of about 200 bodies uh, at the boarding school that my relatives went to mm. in Nevada.
5: So it's a very real
3: issue. And, and that piece is meant to sort of
5: illustrate that. Potent image and something that maybe is a little bit of a different style than a lot of what you mentioned, kind of the graphic style, the sort of propaganda posters. This one is, I feel like it almost conveys pain or that reckoning in a way that's different from some of your more striking kind of pop culture takes, you know?
3: Yeah, I mean, that piece is definitely working within a style that I use, but I don't use as much. The story, as the story goes, is a young boy that goes to a boarding school he's bathed and they put like a talc on him because they think all the native kids are dirty and they, you know, have lice or whatever else. And as they're cleaning him and scrubbing him, the woman who's doing all of that um, sees that his elbows and his knees are darker than the rest of him, which is actually quite common for people who have a little melanin in their skin. And so she took a wire brush and she scrubbed those until they bled. The pain that he felt and soiling his sheets with his own blood in bed are the things that ultimately led to his death. So, yeah, I wanted to create something that wasn't as clean and crisp as the graphic stuff, but that uh, was a little more painterly and something that could sort of articulate the pain and rawness of that story.
5: Powerful work. That's artist and activist Greg Deal. His art exhibit, Merciless Indian Savages, is on display at the Ute Indian Museum in Montrose through January. He also sells stickers, patches, pins, stencils, T-shirts, all at greggdeal.com. deal.com. Thanks for speaking on the radio with me, Greg. Hey, thanks for having me.
0: A bull elk is free at last. After living for two years with a tire around its neck, Colorado Parks and Wildlife officials removed the tire over the weekend. The elk was living on the Front Range, traveling between Jefferson and Park Counties. According to CPW, the bull is four and a half years old, weighing over 600 pounds. Officials believe the tire would have gotten stuck around the elk's antlers when it was young, before it had antlers, or after it shed them during the winter. Officials say it was a tight squeeze removing the tire, and wildlife officers had to cut the antlers off the elk in order to remove the tire. CPW notes officers couldn't simply cut the tire off due to steel in the bed of the tire. Once the dyer was gone, CPW says the bull's neck was in decent condition after all the years. There was a small open wound and hair was rubbed off a little, but the elk was in good shape. CPW says it's a reminder of individual responsibility to keep wildlife safe. CPW urges people to keep their property free of obstacles wildlife can get tangled up in, and if you see wildlife entangled in something, CPW recommends individuals report it immediately. The U.S. Senate's Energy Subcommittee on Water and Power held a hearing in Washington, D.C. last week about ongoing drought conditions. KUNC's Alex Hager reports they heard from water experts from several western states.
5: With the backdrop of a steadily decreasing water supply, experts hammered home the widespread effects of a future with less to go around. Jennifer Pitt is with the environmental nonprofit Audubon Society.
1: The Colorado River provides drinking water to 40 million people. It's the lifeblood for 30 federally recognized tribes. It's the silent utility underpinning a trillion-dollar economy.
5: The director of Arizona's Water Department said the path forward relies on good data and collaboration, including voluntary conservation measures in a river basin where water issues transcend state, tribal, and national borders. I'm Alex Hager.
0: The National Weather Service forecast for the Western San Juans calls for snow showers tonight with a low around 30 degrees. One to two inches of snow accumulation is possible. Tuesday snow showers are likely with mostly cloudy skies, a high around freezing during the day and a low around 20 degrees at night. Two to four inches of snow accumulation is possible. Wednesday should be sunny with a high in the mid 40s. Wednesday night calls for mostly clear skies with a low around 20 degrees. This has been the news for Monday, October 11th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 728-3206.